Welcome to the Lead and Follow podcast. I'm your host, Sharna Fabiano, author of the book, Lead and Follow. And I'm pleased to bring you the latest research, insights, and educational techniques in the emerging field of followership to help you connect and collaborate better with the people around you, whether you're leading or following. Please do leave us a review in your favorite podcast app, and thanks so much for listening. Today, I'm very honored to speak with Dr. Aran Magen. Dr. Magen earned his MA in education and PhD in psychology from Stanford University, completed postdoctoral training in population health as a Robert Wood Johnson Health and Society Scholar, and served as the research director for the University of Pennsylvania's Department of Counseling and Psychological Services. Dr. McGinn is the founder of Early Alert, which works with universities, hospitals, public schools, and first responder agencies to prevent suicide and promote wellness among students and employees. Dr. McGinn's work has been published in top-tier scientific journals, including Psychological Science, Emotion, and Academic Pediatrics, and has been cited in popular media ranging from Allure Magazine to Psychology Today. He is a member of the Jed Foundation's advisory board and the founder of Parenting for Humans, a relationship-first, trauma-informed approach to parenting that helps parents build stronger, more joyful relationships with their children and with themselves. Today, I'm really looking forward to hearing some of his insights around supportive listening and how the right balance of leading and following helps us form healthy human relationships. Iran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Sharna. You're very welcome. To get us started here, I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the kind of work that you do. So by way of brief background, I was born in, in L.A., actually, and then grew up in Israel. Both my parents are Israeli, and I grew up there and then did my military service there and then moved to the U.S. to New York City and did social work for a while there. Uh, working with homeless folks, uh, and then went on to graduate school. And in the course of doing graduate school and education and then psychology, got very interested in how people can help people without getting special training and doing therapy or crisis support or anything like that, just because we all interact with one another all the time and how, how can we help one another. And from that got even more interested in just how relationships form and develop and what gets people to a point where they trust each other and want to cooperate and collaborate uh, in the many different parts of life where, where this happens, right? Work and at home and with pets and increasingly with, uh, increasingly I think about also with ourselves. We have a relationship with ourselves and we can think about how we relate to other people and how we relate ourselves, how we lead and follow other people and how we lead and follow ourselves. Thank you for that. You know, I'm really struck by the phrase you used, people helping people, and your comment about how we often assume help is this professional service or something that requires advanced training, such as a therapist or a teacher or a coach. And of course, those roles are are very important and the expertise is very valuable. But I don't want to forget that, on the other hand, we all also have this innate human capacity to help one another. And I just would love to hear you say a little more about how you think about people helping people. You know, first, in terms of the, the specialization, I uh, so my, my PhD is in psychology. And I think getting a PhD in psychology is a lot like getting a PhD in breathing because everybody does it. You know, we all look at people and try to understand what's going on and think about ourselves a lot. And, you know, we all do psychology all the time. It's just, you know, 
Like you can learn really specific techniques for breathing and when to breathe in certain ways and so on if you get a PhD in breathing. And psychology is kind of like, there are also other tidbits. I mean, there's content, obviously, that you'll learn. But but in terms of the, the relating to people part, this is something that we do all the time. And, and I think m- most of us want to help other people around us when they're upset. And most of us want to be helped when we're not upset. And it's just a question of the the, the how how to do it and how how formalized it is. What what you said for me was kind of poignant, right? This idea that often we think about seeking specialized help when really what we need is is a, a relationship, a good, strong, connected, supportive relationship. Beautifully said. Thank you. As you know, I am very interested in how the ability to both lead and follow each other helps to create supportive, connected relationships, whether they're at home or at work. And I know you've explored how to do that on a very deep level, specifically around the practice of listening, which I think of as a foundational following skill. I wonder if you would agree with that, if you see it that way, and how you think of listening as it pertains to supportive relationships. Yeah, I think listening is following. I think sometimes, you know, Listening comes before we speak, and sometimes, you know, it kind of sets up the dynamic of the conversation to then switch so that the other person is le- is, is leading. We start talking, the other person listens. But I think listening is itself is very much a an active, active following, not just sitting there while the airwaves hit our ears, but really paying attention and trying to understand and, and working to listen without thinking about the next thing we're going to say. Good listening, I think, is a form of meditation. Like v- very explicitly, it's not. This is not a, 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 an analogy. I think it is a form of meditation. The whole point of meditation, and to my mind, meditation is when I sit down and I fail to focus, and then I try again. The act of trying again is the practice of meditation. I think that's why it's called practice, right? We don't do meditation; we practice meditation because we're not going to get it, and so. The first few years, I think, that I practiced meditation, I felt like I was doing it wrong because I couldn't just sit there and be 100% focused for more than, you know, 30 milliseconds. And then later on, I developed this more, I guess, optimistic view of meditation or or more self-forgiving. I don't know what it is, but the sense that, like, me catching myself failing, failing and, and, you know, double quotes, me catching myself distracted is me succeeding at meditation because it's, it's that's the moment of waking up, seeing, oh, I strayed away. Let's come back and learning to to deal with my initial reaction to that. Right? Am I frustrated that I got distracted? Am I upset? Am I discouraged? Am you know? And now more and more easily being able to say, uh, being able to say, oh, I got distracted. Let's come back to the focus, whatever the focus is, right? The breath and object or whatever. And that, that's that been a very nice transition for me from kind of self-judgment to more like, oh, this is happening. Let's go back to doing this. Uh, and that is the, the practice of meditation. And so for me, listening is very much a form of meditation because I'm trying my best to listen and pay attention and follow and inevitably thoughts sprout in my head and things that I want to be saying. And so, but to be able to focus back and say, no, no, I'm just listening. You know, when I'm meditating alone in my room, I'm sitting, you know, I focus or I don't focus and I distract or don't distract. Like there's no consequence, but if I'm trying to listen to someone, 
when I get distracted, I realize I'm distracted and I come back. If I spend a lot of time kicking myself for getting distracted, I'm still missing out on what the other person is saying. I'm still stuck in my head. Right. And so that skill of learning to very quickly dispense with the self-flagellation, to very quickly move away from that and just say, oh, this happened. Let's come back. This actually has implications in this kind of, uh, you know, inter interpersonal meditation. I really, really love how you're describing listening as a form of meditation. And for me, I think that's already one of the most beautiful takeaways from this conversation. I want to connect it back to the idea of people helping people in almost a common everyday sense. Can you talk a little more about the very human impulse to help one another and how listening can perhaps help us to be more helpful, so to speak, in those situations? I do believe that most of us want to help other people. And I think the motivations are varied. Often we want to help people because we want to help them, because we care about their experience. And sometimes we want to help people because we want to feel like we are powerful and agentic enough to influence other people in this positive way, in this case. And I have the ability to help you. That feels good. It means I'm capable of doing something, maybe even for you or to you. And I think there's also a third motivation when people want to help people, uh, which is because I care about you so much that when I realize you're in pain, I feel pain. And I want to help you in order to reduce my empathic pain. All of these motivations are fine if they end up with helping people. Like, I don't care. That's, you know, that's fine. (laughs) Outcome-based. Outcome-based morality. Yeah, totally. Like, I I don't care why you want to be a trauma surgeon, you know. Right. As <laughs> long as you're helping people, that's fine. And, and in the same sense, mm-hmm. the motivation for helping, if it's any one of those three or others, you know, that's that's fine if it results in helping. The problem is, I think that some of those lead to more short-sighted forms of helping or attempts to help. And I think mm-hmm. most commonly what happens is this this third category, when we want to help people because we feel pain, when we see them upset, we try to quickly shut down their upset. Right. And that rarely goes well. Right. When we try to solve their problem quickly, we give them the obvious solution. We tell them not to be upset. We explain to them why it's not actually so upsetting. We encourage them to compare themselves to other people that have it much worse. And all these things can help, but usually not not right away, not if it's the first thing being done. So I do think people want to help people for all kinds of reasons. And I think ultimately, I believe people care. And if they if they know how to help, they will, as long as it's not too you know costly for them. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I do think that the, the different parts of that motivation can, can end up creating an impulse for different kinds of ways to support. And that's where we need to, to think more carefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. So if, correct me if I'm not understanding this, this well. So the skill of listening or practicing, right, bringing oneself back to the listening over and over again, that can increase the chances of of good help because then we're we're not always going to jump to the obvious like oh here's the answer here's the solution but we get more information so that we might be able to help in a better way yes i i think that those align and i'll say i'll i'll take a quick disclaimer uh which i think is important mm-hmm. to say i i don't actually think i know everything about listening or about helping people all of that, right? So like all this is my opinion. <laughs> my opinion is based on stuff I've seen right. or heard <laughs> or course. read or experienced, but I'm not, you know, so if, if I talk in ways that seem like 
I believe in absolute truths. I, I don't. I'm very open to being wrong. Uh, one of my favorite experiences is realizing what an mm-hmm. idiot I've been two years ago, regardless of what the date is today. <laughs> I really worry about the time when I think I made that choice two years ago. Yeah, I would have done exactly the same today. I'm like, that's a problem. I learned nothing these two years. Um, okay. Having said all this, yes, I think that listening well is extremely helpful for the other person and to focus on listening and listening alone and not trying to solve connects us to this this motivation for helping or helps us be more aligned with this motivation for helping that is for the other person's sake more than for any other reason i i think that the the main thing we want when we're upset i think is connection i think connection is really healing and i think one of the biggest fears that we have is being alone and you know and not having a choice about it uh and i think that when we're upset we want to be seen and heard and cared for and accepted and we don't want to be you know changed and told and done to uh and so on and so i think that the the act of listening paradoxically is is the most important form of healing we can offer when people are acutely upset and then after that they become less upset and then we can do all the other stuff right talk and suggest and ask questions and and all of that but yeah that that initial focus on listening there's a paradox there right because if i say listening is a form of meditation meditation is very kind of me focused i'm monitoring what's happening i'm trying to catch myself being distracted and coming back but at the same time i think it's the best way to be focused on the other person the, the the object of the meditation as it were is the other person's experience right and so when i'm focusing as much as i can on your experience when you're talking and keeping just a little bit of my awareness available to catch myself when i drift away and bring myself back i think that's my best chance of actually remaining focused on you which in turn is the best chance i have of helping you feel heard seen connected cared for and putting us on on this road to 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 feeling better. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. I want to ask you a little bit about like the how, but but before we before we get there, I wonder why more of us don't do this. Do you think it's just that we want to relieve our own empathic pain as you mentioned before that you know we're we're kind of having a a virtual experience of suffering, so to speak, when we observe someone else struggling, or is it lack of training, lack of modeling, or? I think it's it's all of the above. I think so. To add to the previous disclaimer of me not knowing everything, I'll also add now that I don't always practice mm-hmm. what I preach. Right. <laughs> right. I I would like to, but I don't. And so, why do I sometimes give advice before hearing out? Sometimes it's just a sense of time pressure and the illusion that if I just just get my advice in, I can just solve this. Time pressure, I think, is just a, a horrible thing. I think time pressure is the killer of relationship. It's the killer of thoughtfulness. It's the killer of you know, <laughs> patience. And so if somebody's bringing up a problem that I think I can solve and I'm pressured for time, I'll just try to solve it and move on, which 
typically doesn't solve it at all when mm-hmm. the difficulty underneath it is more relational or more emotional, not the identified problem at hand. Mm-hmm. So I think time pressure is one reason. I think I think modeling is is another one. Like we we did grow up doing other mm-hmm. things uh, and seeing other forms of relating, and so that's what yeah. we do. I think definitely the empathic pain is a big part of it. I think for a lot of people, you know, you mm-hmm. see your child cry and you run over and you say, don't cry. <laughs> and what does that mean exactly? Why are we saying don't cry? Right. That's such a deep, important question to my mind. Right. Like, what are we hoping? You know, mm-hmm. you know, your friend runs into a wall, sits down, face bleeding. And you're like, don't bleed. Like, how would that solve any? But but that's the instinct we all have. Don't cry. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't think we're saying yeah. don't cry. I don't think at a conscious level, at least, we're not saying don't cry. It makes me upset. You know, don't upset me. I don't think that's what we're saying. We, what we want to say is like, please magically feel better. Uh-huh. I want you to feel better because I'm upset seeing you this because I don't want you to be upset. Like, please just mm-hmm. fix it quickly. <laughs> yes, please fix it quickly. But done out of great caring, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. I think it's this combination of what we learned growing mm-hmm. up and seeing around us, the empathic pain that, that we need solved. And, you know, maybe just in general, one, one part of the human condition is, is the, the, the short-term orientation. It's just, it's hard to believe in the benefit of things that take a while to bear fruit. Mm-hmm. And if you're upset now and we're talking, I want to do something that makes you feel better right now over doing something that maybe will see you remaining upset for 10 minutes and then being less upset, right? And there's this illusion that I can say something or do something that'll solve you right now. Mm-hmm. And even though it hardly ever works, I'll keep trying it, right? Because it's <laughs> yeah. easier than than doing this other thing, which keeps you looking upset for a while. During this whole time, I need to bear with the fact that you might be upset uh, and only mm-hmm. see you getting better later. And I think that's why you know, an opportunity to get some kind of experience with this is so helpful because it's it's kind of hard to imagine doing it until you've at least seen it work. Mm-hmm. Then you say, oh, this makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to a physical therapist and they give you some exercise and you need and they say you need to stretch for four weeks before you see results. You're like, oh, okay. But after you've done it once, you're like, I'm going back to this physical therapist and I'll take a four-week stretching regimen for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it reminds me again of the meditation analogy which you made where it can seem excruciating to sit with yourself for even like 30 seconds. But once you build your tolerance for that process of being unsettled or watching your thoughts wander or being tormented by your thoughts, or, you know, people have all manner of experiences with sitting meditation, you build a tolerance over time or you relate to the practice differently. And I don't know, it's just striking me as a for myself that feels similar to building my tolerance with listening to someone who's upset or being okay with it taking a little longer, you know, and not solving it immediately. Could we venture a little bit into the the how? Because I know you've you've created a lot of programs around supportive listening in particular and people helping people. Could you speak a little bit about how you went about identifying what those things were or what, what they look like in practice? Yeah, the the short version of the history is um Actually, I'll go a step back than I than I thought I would. I remember when I was preparing to apply for graduate school in psychology, and 
I was I was reading this prep book that talks about different schools of therapy, and I came across humanistic psychology, and that was my first ever introduction to it. And uh, it was like a one line, uh, you know, summary of each school. Like here's CBT, here's dialectical, here's humanistic, and humanistic said something like, um, "The therapist provides unconditional positive regard for the client, regardless of what the client expresses." Uh, in order to support the client's growth. And I remember reading this, walking down the street. I remember where I was. I was reading this in the street, looking down. There were no smartphones then because that was before dirt was invented. And <laughs> I remember thinking, that's idiotic. Are you just going to say, sure, great, yeah, to everybody, and then they'll just get better? <laughs> You're just reinforcing what they're already... So, of course, you know, four years later or something, like I'm in the middle of graduate school and and I got super interested in how people help people and, and looked into the research on it. And there's a ton of research about how important it is to have good support and people who care about you and mm-hmm. accept you and all of that. And there's very little research about what makes people feel like the person in front of them cares about them and accepts them. And mm-hmm. it's a lot of what very little how. And so I thought, let's let's just try different stuff. And so I, I found, you know, whatever little research I could and, and borrowed a huge amount from humanistic psychology at that point from from the techniques and and did workshops for, I think we called it how to be a friend initially. Like I, just, I literally put flyers <laughs> up on campus, around campus and sometime in town. And like people would come. It was heartwarming. People were like, yeah, I want to learn how to be a better friend. <laughs> we talked about how to do supportive interactions. And then from there it grew, you know, and over the years I started formalizing this and I started doing work with physicians about building good relationships with patients and with colleagues and then worked with teachers about how to build good relationships with students and then started doing a lot of work with now a lot of that is focused on on parents and parenting, but it's it's always basically the same stuff. So the the how the the core of the how basically is spend a lot of time following. I, I literally mm-hmm. call it that in the in the materials. Mm-hmm. It used to be that I said there are three big chunks to every conversation. Conceptually, there's setup where we actually focus and lose the distractions, and then there's listening, mm-hmm. and then there's talking. And then after a while of thinking about it, a few years ago, I, I changed it. In, in, in my mind, uh, to set up following and leading, because it doesn't matter who's talking, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes, you know, I talk and you listen and maybe you tell me back what you heard or understand, but you're still, you're following as I'm talking and then we switch and then you talk and I listen. So I, I think about it really explicitly in terms of set up, following, talking. And the main techniques in following is first the the internal process of this listening as meditation, right? Just trying to focus and, and losing the internal distractions, just focusing on what the other person says. And the tool to support that is paraphrasing, which is what everybody has been taught mm-hmm. since they were little. I call it wig. Paraphrasing is a really long word. So I call it wig or wigging. Wig is what I got. <laughs> what I got. Nice. So you talk and I wig and you talk and I wig. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the main tool. And mm-hmm. and the general idea is that when people have big emotions inside of them, they can't really process any additional information. When somebody else is upset, there's no point in trying to get them to think differently or listen to your story or Mm -hmm. think of solutions even. Like, it's just not the right time. They're too upset. And so all we do is help them be less upset 
And when they're less upset, we can start suggesting solutions, sharing stories and all of that. So the idea is that Mm -hmm. to help someone be less upset, we follow. And when they're done being upset, we check if it's okay to lead. Mm. And that's when we can help. But the leading, you know, we feel good giving advice, but they feel good when we listen. You know, (laughs) giving advice is almost for us. (laughs) I'm... I am so intrigued how that you've broken down that way, set up, follow, and then lead. And I'd love to hear you maybe talk a little more about the relationship between following and leading, why it's so important to follow first. Why follow before lead? The the premise here that somebody's upset and we're talking with them and we want to help them. And the, 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 Another pre- another premise or assumption here is that when people are upset, th- they can't process new information. And so if we try to change how they feel, if we try to solve them, we, we usually end up sort of fighting their charge. Say, do this. They're like, no. And we say, how about this? They're like, eh, I don't know. And eventually either we get annoyed because they're not trying to be, you know, they're not hearing us or they're, they're insisting on being upset or however we phrase it, or they get annoyed because they don't feel listened and maybe we give advice that's irrelevant for their situation or whatever. Underneath it all, I believe, is really the simple truth that when we're upset, we want to be understood and held. And when we're not upset, we can work on things to change reality, right? But first we reality or we have we want our reality accepted and then we're willing to start working on changing our reality following allows us to say differently following is the phase of the conversation of the interaction where we're giving the other person's charge an opportunity to be expressed and released so that's, that's really on an abstract, energetic level. Um, you can think about it like, like in a martial arts analogy, as a martial arts analogy too, right? Somebody's coming at you with a lot of charge. You don't just meet it and break it. You could. Some, some, some styles do that, right? Or you could try to kind of give them the runaround until the energy is expanded. Mm-hmm. And then you have your way with them. So... <laughs> So that's on a, on a, like I said, on an abstract energetic level. We want to let the charge out. And following does that, right? When you say, I had a horrible day, you know, everybody was mean to me at the office. And I go, oh, well, did you tell them that they shouldn't blow? You're like, well, that's not helpful, right? Like, so this is me trying to immediately lead the conversation. As opposed, mm-hmm. to you saying, as opposed to you saying, I had a horrible day at the office. Everybody was really mean to me. And I go, oh, what happened? And you say, well, one guy said that I did this thing late. And then this other lady um, said that every time that I do a thing, da, da, da. And then I try to follow. And I say, oh, so, so both of them were criticizing the way, mm-hmm. the way you work and the things that you do there. And you're like, yeah, yeah. And then they blah, blah, blah. This is really common, right? When, when we're mm-hmm. charged, the charge wants to express itself. We just, yeah. know the other person is paying attention, basically. Mm-hmm. So the following is helpful in this regard. The charge just gets released. But there's another important reason why following is important, which is people don't always talk about the thing that is really bothering them. 
that's really causing them to be upset, they don't always bring it up first. Some things they don't mm-hmm. even know what is exactly mm-hmm. the thing that's upsetting. And if we listen to them well, they can find out, right? Yeah. So somebody might start by talking about work and how things are upsetting there. And we listen carefully. And after a while, the person might say, yeah, you know, and I just, I don't like it there. Mm-hmm. And maybe we listen really hard for a long time as they talk about this. And eventually they end up saying something like, I just don't feel I'm contributing. I mean, in general, I mean, in life or whatever, right? And like, mm-hmm. It can go. Yeah, it goes deeper. Yeah, mm-hmm. it can go deeper, deeper, deeper. Sometimes it can jump sideways. Be like, yeah, I guess mm-hmm. I got upset because it really reminded me of that time when this other thing happened. So if we start leading too soon, we end up at the wrong destination. We end up at where we thought the mm. conversation was going instead of yeah. where the other person was taking the conversation. Um, yeah, solving the wrong problem, yes. so to speak. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> oftentimes, especially if there's a topic that I'm not quite comfortable talking about yet if you give me an out i'll take it right Mm -hmm. if i want to talk to you about how you know work is it going well but really i'm upset because i feel like like i'm i'm a waste of oxygen Mm -hmm. and you know you start problem solving work with me i might Mm -hmm. i might take you up on it i might go in the direction you're pointing because i'm so afraid of exploring this notion that I feel like a total, you know, irrelevance in the world or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I want to follow, 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 follow to make sure that we're reaching your destination mm-hmm. and that we're keeping all options open to you. And in, in following, we build this trust in real time where the other person mm-hmm. at some point, again, understands consciously or unconsciously that we are following, that they are in the driver's seat and they start talking about all these different things that matter to them because we're not constraining, we're not leading. Yeah, I find it so useful how you described the leader role in this context as the one expressing, right? And so the more you follow, the more you invite to be expressed and you make safe to express maybe something a few layers down. But if you don't offer that invitation, then the thing doesn't rise to the surface or, you know, it doesn't present itself to be expressed. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Really powerful. Ron, before you finish, I wonder if uh, if you would be willing to talk about your Parenting for Humans program, which I'm so intrigued by. And I know a lot of these themes have, you know, been woven into that program. Yeah, sure. For a lot of people, the the relationship they have with their child is, first of all, one of the most important relationships they have in their lives. And secondly, it's it's one of the most mysterious ones <laughs> in some ways, because we come in with all these assumptions of what it should be like and how it works, and then reality happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the goal of Parenting for Humans is to give parents really concrete tools for having a good functional relationship with their kids. So not, not just feel good all the time, but actually have it be fruitful, right? How do you help your child build good habits? How do you have more cooperation and help around the house and with each other? How to comfort your child when your child is upset? And my personal belief and my personal experience is that 
interaction with one's kids can be and feel positive much of the time and still be very fruitful. So how can we enjoy our relationship with our kids while being the kind of parent that we want to be for our kids? And so that's, that's the focus there. So the focus is a lot of really practical tools, a lot of practice mm -hmm. and skill building and thinking about parenting as being made up of a lot of micro skills woven together by, by a general philosophy of relationship first. When I say relationship first, I, I mean this really in a kind of a literal way. I think when a relationship between any two people, mm -hmm. in this case, parent and child, right? But when a relationship is good, everything becomes easy. Mm -hmm. And when a relationship is difficult, everything becomes difficult mm -hmm. between these two people. Right? And if you have a good relationship with your kid, your kid will cooperate more, will forgive you more, will disclose more to you and be more vulnerable with you. Like just everything good happens mm -hmm. when the relationship is better. And so there's a lot of focus on how do we strengthen the relationship and how do we prioritize it? And when do we prioritize it and when do we not? When is it worth sacrificing relationship points? Mm -hmm. My answer, spoiler alert, is very rarely. <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. We prioritize the relationship. So the philosophy is prioritizing the relationship. Mm -hmm. The philosophy is avoiding harm, mm -hmm. psychic harm, which hurts the relationship. And, and then there's a lot of micro skills. How, how do we do it? How do we build a relationship? How do we show the child that oh, we care about you? How do we show the child we respect you mm -hmm. uh, and your autonomy or your power? And at the same time, still get their cooperation yeah. uh, as this is happening. Mm -hmm. So a lot of how with philosophy on top. You can pass on this question if you want, but if you were going to leave uh, podcast listeners with one of those little skills to practice, what, what might you offer? Okay. I'll say two okay. and you can delete whichever one you don't <laughs> no, like. I'm going to keep on both. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so one skill is being explicit about our goodwill mm. toward our child. We assume telepathy a lot. Mm -hmm between us and people that we care about. We assume they know we care about them and that we do things because we want to help them. And um, it's really good to be explicit. So I have, I have a four-year-old son, and I'll give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, it was about time to, to leave, to go for preschool for him, and he wanted to watch another video. And I said, we can watch another video, but... I think it's not a good idea. I think if we do this, we're going to get there after they're done playing in the playground. Mm. And I know how much you love going to the playground. He's like, no, I want to watch the video. And I said, okay. And we watched the video because I'm, I'm fine with these kinds of consequences happening. Mm. He made a choice and I, you know, I gave him the choice and he took it, which for me is a way of communicating respect for his autonomy and so on. Mm -hmm. It's four, but he can learn. So we went there and indeed we got there too late. He was a little upset mm. and, and, uh, when I picked him up and spoke with him, not in an I told you so kind of way, but I said, hey, do you remember when we watched a video and we wanted to watch? And I told him the same story I told you mm -hmm. now. And he said, yeah, I remember. And I said, and you remember that I said, I think it's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah. And I said, do you know why? And he said, because, I don't know, maybe he said something like, you know, we, we would miss playground time mm -hmm. or something. And I said, yeah. So, and this is the part that I was 
driving at the whole time. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, you know, as I knelt down and looked him in the eye and I said, so I, I really hope you know that if I say no, or if I'm suggesting that it's not a good idea to do something, I'm doing it only because I want you to be able to have this thing that I know you want. Mm. Like in this case, I know you wanted to play with your friends in the playground. And that's why I said that it's not a good idea mm-hmm. to see another video. Okay. I'm not saying it just because that's what I want. I'm doing it because I'm on your side. I want you to be able to have what you want. Okay. And he said, okay. Mm. And it stuck like other times, you know, he started accepting much more quickly what I'm suggesting. And I'm still very explicit about why I'm saying no to things. Mm-hmm. What's the, what's the bigger yes behind it. Right. But being able to communicate explicitly, I'm on your side, I'm on your team and not just saying it, but giving examples. Yeah. I think being able to express this explicitly and give explicit examples is a great way to build goodwill in the relationship. Mm. I think it's really, really important that kids have the explicit thought in their head. My parent is helping me with the things I want. My parent is taking care of me, doing these things to help me. So that's one. And then the other thing that I really encourage parents to do is to explicitly consult with and negotiate with their kids. Mm. Because I think that communicates a huge amount of respect, right? So rather than saying, here's what you have to do, to say, I would really love for you to do this. What do you think? Or, you know, if there are chores around the house that need to be done, rather than saying, okay, I need you to start cleaning the dishes or something, to say, you know, I would love some help around the house. I'm doing a lot of these things and there are also other things that I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so here are the four things. Which of these do you feel like you can help with? Mm-hmm. Something like that, right? But more negotiating. And if the kid says, this is a lot to say, well, what, what can you do? Mm-hmm. Right. And start from a place of agreement and then slowly build up from there. But just spend more time negotiating and spend more time consulting, asking for advice, asking for opinions. Mm-hmm such a great way to to show respect and show that you take it into consideration. And again, that builds goodwill. And as you treat them, they, they treat you. So these are, these are my two suggestions. Be explicit about how you're a team Mm -hmm. and spend more time negotiating and consulting. Iran, thank you so much for sharing those two very practical and concrete suggestions. I see your work as so incredibly valuable in part for this reason, because it's so actionable. And I really appreciate how you've invested so much time into understanding those practical hows of helping and supporting. That's so often what makes the difference, right, is the how more than the what. So um, before we close here, please share with listeners how they can find out more about Parenting for Humans. The website is parentingforhumans.com. It all sort of starts there. Uh, and there are there are workshops that happen regularly. I I do f- free workshops. So if like if if any listener here wants to make a workshop for their community or their school or for their parent group mm-hmm. or for their whoever, you can go you can just go on the website and book a workshop. It's actually free. I'm very happy to do it. Uh, we do it online, right? So it's easy to teleport in and out. So parentingforhumans.com is is the place to go. Wonderful. Thank you. I will put that URL in the show notes and strongly encourage listeners to check it out. I'll also note here that Iran has a number of excellent articles on that same website that you can read to become more familiar with his work. So make a little time for that in your schedule. I think you'll be glad you did. Iran, thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to our next conversation.
Yeah, me too. Thank you very much, Arna. You have been listening to the Lead and Follow podcast. Special thanks to Glover Gill for composing our music. And thank you to all of our subscribers. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show with a paid subscription. And if your team or organization is interested in followership training, please reach out anytime. I'd love to help.